It's Thursday, November 30th, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. 99 hostages have been released by Hamas. Thai workers constitute 23 of them. There's also as a Filipino released. These farm workers make up the majority of Israel's agricultural laborers. The Thais are not coming back, not anytime soon. And Palestinians who work the farms, including 30,000 or so a day from Gaza, are barred from doing so. So where will the agriculture sector in Israel secure labor? Malawi, of course. The African nation, 4,000 miles to the south, directly to the south, though each country is tiny, they share the 35th parallel. Malawi's a big friend to Israel, the first African country to open an embassy in Jerusalem. It is the recent recipient of a $60 million aid package, and perhaps not coincidentally, will be sending 5,000 workers off to the land of milk and money. Malawi is the world's fourth poorest country. All of this was confirmed by prominent Malawian politician Eisenhower Mkaka. And if you think I'm delighting in saying Eisenhower Mkaka out of some insensitive sense of exoticism, here is a clip with the man on Malawian TV. Oh yeah, this whole thing's in Chichua, I believe it's called, but uh, it does not matter. It is glorious. Getting a kick out of the name Eisenhower Mkaka is the interviewer there, Mr. Wonder Masiska. And I thought, I liked Ike. I can't tell you about much of the content of their talk, but they seemed delighted the whole time. Absolutely delighted. The deal was criticized within Malawi as secretive and an example of the powerful being bought off. And their charge was leveled by Malawi's Human Rights Defenders Coalition head, Gift Trapisi. Yes. And you're wondering, wait, is there a Wonder Msiska interviewing Gift Trapisi? In fact, there is. La Human Rights Defenders Coalition, HRDC, Bambo Gift Trapensi. Bambo Trapensi, Ndatogoza Budi, Munabuela Anso Budi, Diangulani, Muprogramwe. On the show today, before I talk about what's on the show today, I'm going to talk about what I'll be doing one week. December 6th, Wednesday, December 6th, 6 p.m., I will be presenting at the Village Underground in New York City a presentation called Israel, a post-October 7th debrief. It will include video, audio, maps, aerial footage, not kidding about any of that, live interviews with guests. It will convey my takeaways from the reporting trip I got back from a few weeks ago. It won't be fun. It will be interesting. I'll get you much more of the information that I ever could convey on this show. I don't necessarily want to deluge the audience in general about Israel content, but I also wanted to address the concerns and curiosity of many, many people in the audience who said, what was it really like? What did you really see? What did you learn? What did you take away? And those answers are the purpose of this talk. It will be very interesting. That is Wednesday, December 6th, 6th p.m., New York City's Greenwich Village, the Village Underground. Go to our show notes for a link to make reservations. Or go to MikePesca.com. We have it up there, too. 
And on the show today, Elon Musk made some shocking comments in a New York Times deal book interview. Shocking even for Elon Musk. We'll break down the game film and the spiel. But first, comedian and author Cliff Nesteroff is out with a new book, Outrageous, A History of Showbiz and the Culture Wars. The book in our conversation goes through the history of canceling over the past, I don't know, over 150 years. It gives us perspective on how this all shaped today's moment. Cliff Nesteroff up next. It takes a lot for a guy, even a lousy comic, to attempt a daring joke. It's damn hard to even have the guts to do so. Now, most of the words I just read were part of the clampdown on vaudeville profanity. They would also include harlot, punk, and of course, and sorry, I should have had the warning before I said this one, screwy. It just goes to show that what we think is offensive now and what we thought was offensive then, there's a, I guess they say it rhymes, but it isn't always the same. The name of the new book is called Outrageous, A History of Showbiz and the Culture Wars, and it brings Cliff Nesteroff back to the gist, but in person this time. Hello, Cliff. Hello, Mike. I've always liked your books because you, I think you're the preeminent historian of comedy. I don't know. Do you take that as a compliment? Do you think it's true? I take it as a high compliment. I don't care if it's true. You said it. The only way for it to be a compliment is for it to be not true. If you really knew what was going on, you would say that that is a total mischaracterization. This book has, just to go through the history, and then I want to get to the implications, but there was so much uh, that was eye-opening because I think I think generally when we think of censorship, we go back maybe to the earliest parts of our lifetime or what we heard about the 50s and our knowledge ends there. But you start in the 19th century and not even the last half of the 19th century. What'd you find that surprised you? Well, all of it is surprising and all of it is not but surprising. But from that far back. Well, there was a great quote that's been quoted in many other books by Frederick Douglass in 1848, because I was trying to dig deep. I knew that people resisted and rejected blackface and black stereotypes throughout the 20th century, early 20th century, civil rights era, pre-war, post-war. But I wanted to see if there was such a thing in the 19th century. And there's a great quote, I guess it's slightly famous to scholars of Frederick Douglass, in which he described black pa- blackface performers as the filthy scum of white society. Yeah. And I loved that quote. So that surprised me and delighted me at the same time because it's uh, it's not a vague comment at all. And that's 1848 before the Civil War when blackface uh, minstrel shows were absolutely thriving and really at their height. But there was some debate about that and even people who we would regard maybe not in the same um, breath as Frederick Douglass as being on the right side of civil rights had no objection to it. Right, right. It was not considered flat out racist necessarily because at the height of blackface performance, it was such a large genre that you had a variety of different styles doing it. So you had uh, reactionary racists that did do blackface minstrelry to deride African-Americans. You also had progressive people doing blackface performances in which they advocated for the abolition of slavery. Yeah. So you had both... Uh, conceits coexisting, coinciding the same period. That changed after the Civil War. Once the Civil War ended, most blackface performance, if it had a point of view, if they weren't just singing classics, as it were, um, were more demeaning. 
Yeah. But prior to the Civil War, you had progressive blackface performance, believe it or not. There was also widespread racial insensitivity of all the races, even races that today we just consider white. You know, the Irish had a pretty strong, what was it called? Clan- the Clan Nagale. Clan Nagale, which is the uh, the clan of the Gaelic. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it was sort of like not a literal offshoot of the Molly Maguires, but I think it took some- uh, But violent in their own right. <laughs> I think it took some signals from them in that capacity. So- um, in the 1870s, 1880s, 1890s, immigration is uh, is uh, largely coming from specific quarters of the world. Irish immigration, Italian immigration, European Jewish immigration. These are the stereotypes that are embraced by vaudeville performers. One of the most common forms of uh, comic devices still to this day that always seems to work has its origin then, malapropisms. Yes. So we see Borat, we see Ali G do malapropisms. In the 60s, it the was- Balky Bartokomos. Balky, definitely. <laughs> yeah. Going back earlier, the Bowery Boys, Norm Crosby, they all did malapropisms. It's always works. It all, it's always funny. Uh, even Homer Simpson sometimes does malaprop. Was it Shaw who invented Mrs. Malaprop? Is that where the uh, where the word comes from? from? Yeah, yeah, I believe so. so. Definitely nineteenth century. Um, yeah. But so immigrant comedy, comedy based on stereotypes of immigrants, used malapropisms frequently. The Irish immigrant who mispronounces something, the Dutch immigrant who mispronounces something. It was always a good laugh getter. Yeah. But as these immigrants became assimilated, as they had children born in America that new generation started to reject the stereotypes they saw on the stage. They saw them as insulting, a portrayal that portrayed them as backwards when they felt yeah. that they weren't. And so organized protest started to spring up. And we're talking really early on, the 1880s, the 1890s, and the early 1900s, Irish groups organized to ban Irish stereotypes from the stage, whether it was a leprechaun, whether it was just you know somebody doing a jolly jig. Um, and people that ran vaudeville theaters essentially said, no, fuck you. People enjoy this. This is comedy. Yeah. You have no right. And they said, all right, well, watch out next show. And sure enough, the Clan Nagale started to sabotage vaudeville shows that featured comedians who did Irish stereotypes. Some of these comedians were Irish themselves. Some weren't. Didn't matter. They would protest all the same. And it wasn't just protest. It was straight up sabotage. Right. They would bust lights in the theater. Um, they would storm the stage. They would blow whistles so that nobody could be heard. And eventually this did lead to vaudeville theaters dropping those performances, whether you feel that that is a good thing to do or a bad thing to do, that is what happened. You have treatises in the book from names that we know from the names of theaters, like Schubert and different um, people who ran the organizations mm -hmm. that Broadway would become Hammerstein, to be. yeah. Hammerstein, and they at first pushed back, but then in a generation or so, seeing what they were up against, I don't know, maybe uh, having listening to the better angels of their nature said, yes, we will have no more of these harmful stereotypes in our theaters. Well, a lot of the uh, theater owners were Jewish and there were anti-Semitic stereotypes on the stage sometimes. And sometimes Jewish stereotypes, again, perpetuated by Jewish immigrants. Other Jewish people felt that we're beyond that now. You shouldn't right. still be doing that. So there was this internal debate within various races and ethnicities themselves and immigrant groups. And so some of them were sensitive to that. They felt, well, okay, if this Irish group feels that strongly about it, if this Italian group feels that strongly about it, I could see it through their eyes. If it was Jewish stereotypes, maybe we should subside them a little bit. Um, there were also all kinds of editorials in the press in those days that warned against buckling to protest, saying, well, 
if we erase uh, Jewish stereotyping from the stage, Irish stereotyping from the stage, what's next? No more black stereotypes? Next thing you know, black people will be protesting. And that's exactly what happened, of yeah. course. Yeah. And so a couple things to pick up on. One is we were just talking about vaudeville, but this goes on and probably goes on through the present. But it exactly happens with the days of radio. And the Jack Benny show had that malaprop character and Jewish characters and Jews loved it. But then people would hear anti-Semites getting a big kick out of the Jewish stereotypes. And that exactly is something that uh, we're dealing with today, just like when you started talking about, oh, the second generation of Irish had some objections. I'm sure many people thought of Apu. That is exactly yes, the story yeah. of Apu. Yeah, there was an actor named Sam Hearn and another actor named Artie Auerbach. They were both regulars on the Jack Benny program in the 1940s. There was a different attitude towards stereotypes in all media in America, on radio and in the movies, pre-war and post-war, before World War II and after World War II. And Hitler's actions were the direct reason because in Nazi Germany, starting in the early, well, 33, 34, 35, most comedy was outlawed in Nazi Germany. There was a guy um, who was sent to a concentration camp as early as 1935. Most people don't even realize the concentration camps were there in 35. The concentration camps were, the death camps weren't, but yes. Yeah. So, um, and he was a comedian in a Berlin cabaret who uh, ridiculed the Nazis just probably very uh, gently, really. Yeah. And he was jailed for it. And uh, it, it, somebody secured his release. Somebody who wasn't Jewish lobbied for him, a fellow actor. But- in the post-war period in America, attitudes changed towards stereotypes because we saw that in Nazi Germany, uh, anti-Semitic uh, imagery and ridicule was embraced. And right. so there was this feeling that we just fought this overseas. We can't tolerate anything that even uh, shows even a smidgen of similarity here in America. So there was really a sea tide of change. And again, there were people who resisted, who said, hey, it's just comedy, it's just jokes. Lighten up. If we eliminate all the ethnic dialect, all the stereotypes, you know, then we have lost our sense of humor as a nation and say goodbye to comedy. These were really things that people were writing very seriously about the time that sound exactly like the debates you hear today. But just to go back to the pre-war period, and I didn't recognize this, I knew that there was uh, some sentiment that was pro-Hitler, uh, and I knew about Lindbergh, and I knew about Ford, but I didn't realize that the Texaco Star Theater, which underwrote the Eddie Cantor show, yeah. didn't like the fact that Eddie Cantor kind of gently would mock Hitler. And they were in league with Hitler and they sold uh, they sold oil and gasoline to Hitler. And they basically censored Eddie Cantor for yeah. being in their words, we're not just anti-Nazi, but anti-German. They use that. They use the cudgel of you're being insensitive to an ethnicity. Yes, yes, yes. Well, the chairman of Texaco at the time was a Nazi sympathizer, a German-American man. And yes, they secretly uh, sold oil to the Nazis, which was uh, not allowed at the time. Eddie Cantor was one of the chief spokespeople for the Hollywood Anti-Nazi League very early on. And the biggest name celebrity lobbying for Jewish refugees leaving Nazi Germany. He was the one that was pleading with FDR, please let them in. He held rallies, fundraisers on their behalf to no avail. 
Um, he very seldom mentioned Hitler on his radio program. What he would do was mention it to people in the studio audience before they went on the air and after they went off the air. And Texaco didn't even like that. They said, no, we don't want you uh, making any political commentary. It's bad for business if people think you have a political thought we don't want you involved in the Hollywood anti-Nazi league, so on. And he said, well, fuck you, essentially. I'm Jewish. This is my cause. I care about this. I have a platform. Other people aren't talking about it. And it created grave conflict. And yes, his show was canceled in 37, right around that period. It only came out about six months later that Texaco had been uh, trading with the Nazis and that the chairman, who they eventually fired it for this reason, had been a Nazi sympathizer. So your analysis is that America looked at Germany or went through a war with Germany and said, let's do the opposite of what they did. But isn't it the case that they, you? so how that showed up is they were involved in gross racial stereotyping and therefore we won't be. But couldn't you also interpret it as they were involved in censorship? They would throw people in the um, in concentration camps who transgressed and insulted the character of the people. They were censorious. So why didn't it show up? up as therefore the American lesson will be to be embracing of greater freedom and less censorious. Well, it is censorship, but nobody wants to call it censorship. Nobody wants to confess to being a censor and will always come up with excuses for it to justify it. Because frankly, from my political standpoint, suppressing bigotry on the surface seems pretty logical. You know, is it censorship? Yes, it is. Does anybody want to admit to that? No, because anti-bigotry sounds logical. Um, and when it comes down to especially these free speech arguments <clears throat> that pose somebody who's espousing bigotry versus a crowd that's protesting bigotry, who do you side with? Well, the free speech absolutist ends up siding with the bigot, which is a terrible look for anybody, even the person that is defending them. They have to justify it in a certain way, you know, just because they don't want people to misinterpret it. And but as a human being, you understand why people would protest it. Even if you feel it is anti-speech, certainly you can understand why somebody would protest somebody they believe is espousing bigotry. So is it censorship to suppress bigotry or that which is, is perceived as bigoted? It is. Yeah. Uh, most people who are left-wing probably don't want to confess to it. Um, but likewise, suppressing anti-bigotry or deriding protesters as censors is its own form of censorship. If you do it, right, if you do it inaccurately and if you describe the Netflix employees as censors. literally saying that they were censoring Dave Chappelle. Yeah, to me, the argument, and it's intentionally, in my opinion, muddled. It's intentionally framed that the person speaking who was objected to is the king of free speech and those objecting to are celebrating censorship when in my argument, I believe it is two opposing uh, 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 points of view clashing with each other, yeah. free expression versus free expression. And usually in media, it is framed usually by people with an agenda that it's free speech versus censorship. Right. But it, for me, it isn't. Protest uh, can lead to changes that could be correlated to censorship, but protest itself is free expression. What do you think of the asks of the Netflix employees that the Dave Chappelle special not literally be taken off the server, which probably wouldn't happen, but be amended with the statement, what you are about to see is hate speech. That was one of their demands. 
Well, a disclaimer, uh, regardless of what it says, doesn't bother me. You know, it's like saying parental advisory, you know, whatever, when you watch a movie on TV. So, so when D. Snyder and all those rockers against censorship well, that in was front slightly, of Congress that was slightly like different. That was yeah. slightly different because when D. Snyder testified against the parental advisory sticker, yes. what happened, it didn't just get a sticker. JCPenney and other chain stores said, we will not carry any album that has that right, sticker. Right, it was like the NC-17 designation. Whereas yeah. when there's a disclaimer before a Looney Tunes cartoon, which they did on the DVD collection when they showed some cartoons that had racial stereotypes, they had a disclaimer that these cartoons are of their time, they may not be appropriate for some audiences, blah, 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 blah. And then you still got to watch a cartoon. That is a very uh, um, um, easy sort of middle ground because you still get to watch the cartoon. You know, there's certain instances people will proclaim censorship. So for instance, HBO Max during the Black Lives Matter height of protest removed Gone with the Wind from the streaming service very quietly. And some people objected that there was this was censorship. Now, first of all, things disappear from HBO Max without censorship when the license expires and it drives me crazy. So things come and go. But Gone with the Wind is more accessible today than it was when it came out in 1939 without censorship. I can get it on Blu-ray. I right. can get it on DVD. I can get it on other streaming services. I can go to film festivals that show it. I can watch it on VHS or Laserdisc if I choose. There are multiple ways that I can watch Gone with the Wind. Whereas when it came out in 1939 and it was a hit movie, once it left the theaters, before even TV was invented, you could go years without access to it. So while there are new uh, birth pangs of what you might call censorship or suppression or removal. We also have more access to things yeah. today. Although that's to me the same argument as when a library in a Southern state takes out Toni Morrison's beloved, they could say, you could get it on Amazon. You could get it many more ways than you could have back when the only way to get a book like this was in the public library. Yeah. Well, my book is not available in all public libraries and I'm being censored. God damn it. No, but my point is that when one I know what you're saying. yeah, when one organization takes it away, it might not change the overall um, accessibility of the work, but it is making a statement. Um, Gone with the Wind seems to be the sort of yeah, Gone with the Wind is pretty prevalent in the book, and there's a lot of interesting history about Gone with the Wind. But I, I was thinking of other choices that, mm -hmm. especially in the summer of 2020, that streamers were making or seemed to be having thrust upon them, including the elimination of certain episodes of 30 Rock that included blackface or Sarah Silverman's episode where she wore blackface. Some of those, I think, with 30 Rock was preemptive, right? It was the fear that people were going to object. So we will we'll remove it um, before it happens. When there are advertisers involved, that is when people tend to make those types of choices most frequently. Netflix doesn't have advertisers, so it has the luxury of not necessarily buckling to pressure as quickly as something owned by NBC or CBS or ABC or people that take advertisements would. And that's true throughout history. That's the main form of effective protest, whether you're a right-wing evangelical or a left-wing civil rights advocate, you target the sponsors. So when there are no sponsors, um, that's less likely to happen. And that's Cliff Nesteroff, 
author of Outrageous, A History of Showbiz and the Culture Wars. And the conversation didn't end there. If you want to hear more of our conversation, that includes an argument that Cliff says never gets made. The argument we frequently hear is that there's no free speech anymore. Once again, comedians are under attack. They are trying to silence us, whoever they are. But it ignores the fact that for most of the 20th century, the majority of what you see on any stand-up special today would not have been permitted. You can subscribe at subscribe.mikepesca.com. And now the spiel. Elon Musk was interviewed at length at the New York Times Deal Book Summit by Andrew Ross Sorkin, who did an excellent job even rolling with this bit of diminishment. So I will certainly not pander. And Jonathan, like, the only reason I'm here is because you were a friend. Like, what was my speaking fee? You don't, you're not making was, any... Hey, first exactly. of all, I'm Andrew, but... Uh, yeah, sorry. It's okay. Elon came in hot, making headlines, telling the potential income base of X, they used to call it Twitter, which is his advertiser-supported business. He gave him this message. Uh, don't advertise. You don't want them to advertise? No. What do you mean? If, if somebody's going to try to blackmail me with advertising, blackmail me with money, go fuck yourself. He restated the onastic imperative, this time ringing out at least a modicum of nervous laughter. You would think that such an uncomfortable comment would automatically engender it, but it was so shocking, as you heard, people didn't even titter. Advertisers are not blackmailing Twitter, just as Burger King's customers are not blackmailing them by buying Whoppers. And by the way, the customers themselves aren't being blackmailed by Burger King, what with their thrusting onion rings upon them, unbidden. The idea of advertisers blackmailing Twitter with money is like the customers of SpaceX blackmailing that company by buying rides on their rockets to launch their satellites. That is the business. Elon was in a persecuted moment there. You could tell. He got grandiose saying if they, the blackmailing advertisers, kill X, then the world will know who killed it. Okay, that is Elon at his worst. I don't talk about Elon Musk that much because there are legions of people on the internet whose entire personalities are to denigrate Elon's. He mismanaged Twitter. The results show it. I don't understand some of his tweeting habits, except as a sign of a fragile psyche. And Musk himself acknowledged this. Once in a while, I will say something foolish. But for all the unignorable head-shaking X and Twitter business decisions, there are one or two facts that are hard to square if you want to write off Elon as a mostly evil or deranged narcissist who will certainly kill us. For one thing, there's the fact that the following claim has more truth than fiction to it. I've done more for the environment than everyone else, and any single human on Earth. How do you feel about that? No, no, I, but, no, how do I feel about that? Yeah, no, I'm, I'm asking you personally how you feel about that, because this goes, we're talking about power and influence and... I'm, and saying, I'm saying what I, what, what I care about is the, the reality of goodness, not the perception of it. And what I see all over the place is people who care about looking good while doing evil. Fuck them. 
I know all the rebuttals, the critique is something like the environmental benefits aren't that great. You're going to have to mine lithium. Think about how heavy a Tesla is. This causes rubber particle displacement because it's weighing down on the vehicles. Yes, yes, I understand. The real critique, though, and you hear this often, is whatever Elon has done for the environment, those environmental benefits are a byproduct. He didn't want to help the environment. He's just an egomaniac who never cared about saving the world. What he cared about is making money. And he realized that there was a significant potential market out there for electric vehicles. But so what? That is Adam Smith's or Frederick Hayek's ideal. (laughs) But I do think he cares a little bit. And I think he is a visionary. In fact, if you look at all the people who have ever been the world's richest person or the world's most influential person, the kings of yore, the barons of the Gilded Age. He has some things in common with them. He has passion, and he doesn't seem to understand how some people aren't nearly as driven as he is. Life has to be more than simply solving one sad problem after another. Uh, You know, there there have to be reasons where you wake up in the morning and you're happy to be alive. There have to be reasons that you, you have to Say, why are you excited about the future? Like, what gives you hope? And like other most powerful men, his drive is not purely born of optimism. You said, my my mind is a storm. I don't think most people would want to be me. They may think they want to be me, but they don't know. They don't understand. What did you mean by that? What was what, 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 your mind being a storm? And I, I think it. I mean, I, I have known you for quite some time. I think it is a bit of a storm. Yes. Um, yeah. I mean, in as much as a, a weather metaphor makes sense, um, I, my mind is often feels like a like a like a very wild storm. Um, I mean, I have I have a fountain of ideas. I mean, I have more ideas than I can possibly execute. Um, so I have no shortage of ideas. Innovation is not the, not the problem. Execution is the problem. I've got a million ideas. I mean, I've got a, an entire design for an electric supersonic vertical takeoff jet, but I, I mean, I just, if I, I just can't do that as well. I've had that for 10 years. Um, um, I mean, there's a million things. Um, but is your storm a happy storm? No. It's not a happy storm. No. Yeah, that would probably describe Cornelius Vanderbilt or John Jacob Astor. Here's a quote about him. His character is summed up as selfish, narrow-minded, unsocial, cold, acquisitive, stubborn, and unrelenting. I think also of Henry Ford or take J. Paul Getty. Just see the movie? He wouldn't pay full ransom for his grandson, so they cut off one of the kid's ears. But they did knock down the price, $15 million, I bet the grandfather said. That is a pretty fair discount for a grandson missing only one ear. But anyway, I would imagine, as I imagine all these other rich men, I see them in a way as similar to Elon, but also in a significant way different. And I put into this category the powerful men of world history, the Churchills, the Napoleons, the Putins. I don't think any of them would be so unguarded and really incautious as Elon consistently is. I don't think any of them would fritter away a significant part of their fortunes and therefore their power on an outlet whose very design is to be unguarded. 
He's an odd, damaged man, this Elon Musk, in ways, I think, thanks to his biographers like Walter Isaacs, and I think we basically understand, brilliant, abused, shunted aside, tempestuous. I find Elon enmity overall pretty boring. I wish he wouldn't be so stupidly conspiratorial. I also don't think the effect of all those tweets or posts that are shamefully conspiratorial have had a fraction of the effect that he's having with Tesla and probably with SpaceX or Starlink or maybe the, uh, the monkey brain one. I'm glad Elon Musk exists. I just wish we had better systems to control him. The storm, a storm, think about a storm. It's a force of nature that certainly can destroy, but we also need it. We need it to germinate the fields or occasionally lift us up from our black and white existence and deliver us to a vivid place with dangers and possibilities. And that's it for today's show. Corey Wara is the producer of The Gist, and Joel Patterson's the senior producer. Michelle Pesca is in charge of special projects for The Gist, including coordinating the live show Wednesday, 6 p.m., Village Underground, Wednesday, December 6th. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. And thanks for listening. Go fuck yourself. Is that clear? I hope it is. Hey, Bob, if you're in the audience. <laughs>